Heavenly Father, as we uh, close our time in prayer, we thank you for our companies, for the men that uh, we are able to journey with. I pray for uh, the men that have committed to this group, Lord, and I pray that you would strengthen them to, uh, to see through to the end. Help them to continue to read your word and uh, to be edified by it. Help me to explain it. I pray that you would help me to be clear and concise. Help me to uh, help uh, the men to see the big picture of, of what you've done for us in history and how you've recorded for us in Scripture. So we give you the rest of our time tonight. It's a little bit over an hour. I pray that you would help us to see these two books, uh, perhaps with a new perspective. Uh, in all things, Lord, show us Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, before we get into this, uh, I did want to just take a, a moment to thank you guys again. Um, you are wildly exceeding my expectations as far as what I had hoped for. Um, in this study, and it just, it encourages me more than you, I think, will ever be able to know, un unless you become a pastor, and you're trying to disciple a group of men. It's, it's just a phenomenal experience, something I've never, never, ever uh, experienced in my 15 years of ministry, so thank you so much. Please keep it up. Um, we're more than halfway, and we have three weeks after this until a four-week break, and then only three weeks after that. So it's doable, like where you can see the horizon and you're, you're going to be able to get to the end. So please keep coming and keep doing your reading um, and keep talking amongst yourself. Send me questions. Uh, I, lo I love dialoguing about these things. So thank you very much. Um, so first and second Kings. Again, um, I don't think I need to spend much time reviewing. These are books, the last two books in the former prophets. So, former prophets, there's Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. So, we have First and Second Kings in our Bible because of the scroll length. These are, this is a long book. But as you see, I didn't have to create two different graphs. This is one book, the Book of Kings. So, in the Hebrew Bible, this is the Book of Kings that in the Septuagint has been divided into First Kings and Second Kings. And the Septuagint is the Greek translation. Uh, by far, as we said, the most difficult plot to follow because it's, it's roughly chronological, but what you have is the, the narrator will give you all of the reigns of the kings in Israel and until there's a new king in Judah and then flip over to all the, the reigns of the kings in Judah until there's a new king in Israel. So there's chronologically overlap because they're not like presidents that are every four years changing. And so it is roughly chronological, but if you just look at this graph, therefore, look at how many kings um, Israel, Israel's in the blue and Judah's in the red. Look at how many kings uh, that Israel went through, especially at the front end. Well, Jehoshaphat reigned in Judah. Long reign there, right? Similar thing. So now as we get to the latter half, you get some longer reigns from Israel. And then once you get to chapter 18, there is no Israel. It's just Judah. So that's why it gets all red at the end. Now this is a complicated plot in so many ways. 
But what we need to first establish is what's the macro plot. Because what I want you leaving here with today is you, you don't need to know all of the kings. There's 39 kings in, in the book of Kings. And if you add David and Saul, then you get 41 kings altogether. So, and if you include David because he dies in chapter 2, then you have 40 kings in the book of Kings. So you, you, you just can't worry about the biographies of all those kings. And in fact, did you notice that the, the writer didn't care about every king either? Some kings get almost no information. So whatever information is given will be crucial for understanding the fullness of the plot. But a lot of the kings, they may have reigned for a long time and we know next to nothing about them because they didn't, there's nothing really that important in their life and in their reign that helps us to understand what God is doing in salvation history. You have to remember, get yourself in the, in the head of the Deuteronomist. That's the name that scholars have given to the author of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. The Deuteronomist, that pastor theologian that stole the scrolls from the temple when Nebuchadnezzar was burning it down, took the scrolls, went into Babylon, rolled them out, and wrote this history. Four books, all part of one giant epic. Get yourself into his head. He, he's not that concerned about history. Did you notice the little refrain? And all of the acts of Solomon, are they not written in? And then he cites his source. So when, when I say that whoever wrote this is writing it from sources, it's because he tells us throughout the books that he got his information from sources. And if you want more information, go to those sources, which when this was written were still existing. Right? So he's not that concerned about history. The history is a totally different thing. He's concerned about theological history. And theological history means what about history teaches us something about God? What, what about this history teaches us about what God is doing? What about this history will teach us about the gospel? Ultimately, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So the history that he's preserving here in some way will tell us about the gospel. You've got to keep that in mind. Um, so, there are actually 12 kings that I think you should know. If you could just know something about 12 kings, in the book of Kings you'll be doing fine. So, in your notes, pull out page number 3. I'm going to tell you what kings those are. And you might as well just circle them. So in the future, if you want to refresh yourself on the book of Kings, then these are the kings that you should be able to say, oh yeah, I know a little bit about him. I know what he was up to. Or in one case, a she, a queen. So of course you need to know something about Solomon and Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So that takes us up to the end of chapter 14. And then in um, chapters 16 through 22, you need to know about Ahab. Who is Ahab married to? Right, Jezebel. You already know something about Ahab. Good. And then Jehoram. And Jehu. Jehu's in 2 Kings 9 and 10. And then in 2 Kings 11, Athaliah, who is a queen. You need to know about her. And that's about it until we get to chapter 18. You need to know about Hezekiah, Manasseh, Josiah, Jehoiachin, 
and Zedekiah. Now, I think that's manageable. And as we go through the plot, then we'll try and tease out why, why those 12? What, what is it about those 12 that are important? So what's the macro plot here? Well, you can divide the book of Kings, so First and Second Kings, into these four major categories. You have First uh, Kings 1 through 11, which is the biography of King Solomon. And then in chapters 12 through 14 of First Kings, those three chapters tell us about the divided kingdom. And then 1 Kings 15 to the end of 2 Kings 17, we get a back and forth court history, so to speak, uh, or the reignal history, I should say, of the kings of Israel and Judah, chronologically. Some kings are more important than others, as we've already said. And then we know that at the end of chapter 17 of 2 Kings, what happens? The big bad Assyrians come in and destroy Israel uh, and take them, scatter them abroad, kill a lot of them, scatter the rest of them abroad, and then bring in other people groups to populate Samaria, which is that northern kingdom. And that's where you get the Samaritans. They interbreed with some of the poor um, Israelis. And there's, that's the beginning of the Samaritans, which this is why they're called half-breeds by the more purebred Judeans, the Jews down in Jerusalem, and they then twisted the Torah to make it into something that it wasn't, which is why there's that, that tension between Jews in Judah and Jerusalem at the time of Jesus and Samaritans up north because they're Babylonians and, and all kinds of people groups mixed in with the Israelites that were the poorest Israelites that stayed in the land, and they twisted the books of Moses into something else. And then from 2 Kings 18 through 25, you have just the kings of, of Judah. And at, at the end of 25, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple, and carries a couple of waves of uh, exiles into captivity in Babylon. And that's the end of of this and that's where you get the author is alive in that in like the author of these books was alive in second kings 25 he's writing about history that he knows and he goes all the way back to joshua to start and bring it forward so i want to go over this plot again and just sort of focus in on what do you absolutely need to know about this plot in order to understand anything else well, the first thing you need to know is you need to know that David dies, which is not that hard to get your head around, and there's, a, there's some tension for who's going to replace him. There's Adonijah, who is actually the next in line for the throne, and then there's Solomon, and Solomon is the second son of Bathsheba. And there's a, there's a section in 2 Samuel where uh, Nathan the prophet comes and, and David says, oh, because remember his first son died that was conceived with Bathsheba in adultery. And so he names his second son, son Shlomo, Solomon, which means his peace. And what, what David intends by naming Solomon peace, Shalom, 
is I finally have peace with God. God has been gracious to me. He's restored peace. And, and God sends Nathan the prophet to David and says, no, 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 his name's not going to be Shlomo. It's going to be Jedidiah. Jedidiah means the David of the Lord. David means beloved, the beloved of the Lord. So David names Solomon peace, and God names him the beloved of the Lord or the David of the Lord. So we get there in 2 Samuel, we know that Solomon is God's choice, but we never see David choosing Solomon. And then it, there's that weird scene with Nathan and Bathsheba trying to convince David that you promised to give the throne to your son Solomon and Bathsheba's there trying to convince this old David who's can't stay warm and he's got Abishag the Shunammite as a hot water bottle laying beside him um, and I, I that's maybe kind of crude but the point is he never had sexual relations with her so she functioned that way she she was a concubine that would never conceived or never consummated her role in David's court and that that's important information. It's not just crude information because it shows you David is on the steep decline. He is very near death. This is not the David that we know. And this whole scene, I'll just toss this in and you can follow it up, reminds us of a scene way back in Genesis when a, a, a wife and a, a second son or a son conspired against an aging old man and deceived that old man into giving the blessing, the messianic blessing. So you remember you had um, Isaac was old, his eyes were dim, you know, he was on the decline. And so enter Rebecca and Jacob to deceive I, uh, Isaac. The way that this is written in 1 Kings 1 forces you back to that. And so what's likely happening is David never promised anything to Solomon. And Nathan and Bathsheba are deceiving David. What's their motives? Bathsheba's motive is there's a pretty plum position for the mom of the king. You see it all through the history, right? His mother was, as they're giving us the new kings of Judah, his mother was, his mother was, so there's a posh position for her, plus she gets to keep her life as a bonus because usually there's this you know, regicide of the potential kings. So all their families get killed by the incoming king. So that's a bonus. What's Nathan's motivation? Jedediah. Nathan knows that Solomon is God's choice. So just something to play with when you're thinking about election and God's choice and our responsibility. Again, we have a, a moment of deception that brings about God's will in the narrative to get us. And that changes the entire line of the kings from Adonijah to Solomon. That's no small shift. You don't get to Joseph of Nazareth without that deception. So anyway. All that to say, that's in chapters one and two. Moving on, we see the life of Solomon. We're gonna talk quite a lot about that when we get into the themes, and it's a major part of the section. No other king in kings gets that much treatment. We're gonna talk about why. But ultimately, at the end, when Solomon dies and Rehoboam, his son, becomes king, the people come and say, we will support you as king if you lighten the load of your father. The yoke that your father put on us was too heavy. And what was the yoke that they're talking about? Slavery. I know there's one verse that says that Solomon enslaved 
other nations and not his own people, but in another place he enslaved everyone except the tribe of Judah. So if you're in the tribe of Judah, no slavery. But he enslaved, he broke the kingdom into 12 districts and he enslaved on a rotating basis, forced labor, it wasn't a permanent slavery, but he brought them in, one out of three months they were enslaved for his building projects, which included the temple but went far beyond the temple. And he collected unfair tribute from these 11 districts as well and lived large on the work and the agriculture of the other tribes. And Judah shared in the spoil. And so the other tribes say, okay, we will support you because you're David's grandson, but lighten the load. We don't want these heavy taxes and we don't want this slavery. And what does Rehoboam do? He confers with uh, his friends and they say, ah, stick it to them. And he confers with Solomon's advisor. He says, ah, be careful, son. You know, just win them today and they'll be yours for a lifetime. And so what does uh, Rehoboam do? He goes out and he says, listen, listen, kingdom. My little finger is bigger than my father's member, if you know what I mean. He was crude. We, not, we like loins. Yeah, bigger than my, his loins. But it's actually in the Hebrew very direct and crude. He says, I'm not going to lighten anything. My father ruled over you with whips. I'm going to rule over you with scorpions. Not wise, maybe. Uh, so the kingdom split. And we find out way back when Solomon was alive that God had already raised up Jeroboam. And he sent Ahijah the prophet to him. And, and it, it's very much like a Samuel David moment. Jeroboam and David are, are characterized very much the same until Jeroboam puts golden calves in Dan and Dan up north and Bethel down south. So Jeroboam and David are very much the same. And that's why you, until the apostasy, and the big thing that makes them different is the apostasy of Jeroboam. So in comes Jeroboam, who had already been set up. And interestingly enough, do you know what Jeroboam's job had been in Solomon's administration? He was the director of slave labor. But at some point, he rebelled against Solomon and, and whatever, for whatever reason, fled to Egypt. He's called back. So there must have been this, this moment where he says, I don't agree with the policy of the king. Because Israel calls him back when Solomon dies and says, why don't you be our king? So if he was uh, a cruel slave master, they're not going to call him back. So he must have, it must have been because of his position as the director of slavery where he says, I don't agree with this anymore. And he resigned, made it very public and well known and went down to Egypt. So they call him back to be king. And this is where the kingdom splits. God, through the prophet Ahijah, says, I'll give you the kingdom, but I can't, take it, I can't give you everything because I've made unconditional promises to David. There must always be a lamp in Jerusalem. And so David gets to keep the kings of Judah. So Solomon, Rehoboam, and all the way through, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, uh, Ahaziah, Jehoash, Amaziah, Jotham, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, Jehoiahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and not Zedekiah, he's not in the Messianic line. Jehoiachin is. Those are all descendants, one after another, from David. Not because they deserved it, but because God had promised in 2 Samuel 7. Right? Okay. So, 
we're at the split kingdom. We've got two kings. It, with Jeroboam, we find out that he, uh, he puts up these, these apostate worship centers. Why does he do that? The text sa- says, right, to keep them out of Judah. He's worried if they go down to worship in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, eventually the political differences will fade away and the religious unity will triumph. And so he's worried about that, so he cares more about his power and his dynasty than he does about the Lord, and that's his undoing. That's why he, they walked in the ways of Jeroboam. They, they care about empire instead of kingdom. <laughs> that's, that happens in churches all the time. Are we worried about God's kingdom or about our own empire? Got to be very careful. So that takes us to the, end of, uh, to the end of the second major section, and now we're going through the life of these kings. Um, the first king that I said that you need to know in here is Ahab, and the second is Jehoram. The only reason, really, that you need to know these two kings is because these are the kings that are reigning in Israel during the prophecy and the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. Now, a second little fact to note about them, do you notice that I highlighted the Omri dynasty? And there's four kings in the Omri dynasty. You have Omri, Ahab, Ahaziah, and Jehoram. Do you see that? All blue kings, Israelite kings, northern kings. So this is really important because God sent Elijah during the reign of Ahab and Elisha, which overlaps, Ahab, Ahaziah, but most of his ministry is with Jehoram. What's God doing? Well, if we go back to Jeroboam, God rejected Jeroboam and put the house of uh, Basha on the throne. Basha was no better, so he had Omri come in and take over. We're, we're into at least our third attempt at a northern dynasty that would rival the Davidic dynasty down south. And so there's a lot of hope that, well, maybe the Omrides can just get on board with God. And so God sends prophets to try and get these Omride kings. You know, Omride is named after their first. You have Davidic for the Davidic kings after David. The Omride kings named after Omri. And so Elijah and Elisha are exerting a lot of energy trying to get the Omride dynasty on side with Yahweh. And it fails. They, they do not give up the Baals. They do not give up the Asherah. Therefore, they do not give up Jeroboam's shrines even. Therefore, God sends Jehu as the axe to cut down the Omri dynasty. And once Jehu is on the scene, we know that the northern kingdom is over. God poured all of his energy into the Omri dynasty. When the Omri dynasty failed to get on board with Yahweh through Yahweh's prophets, this whole northern experience the ten tribes up north, they're going to fall. That's just absolutely certain. And look at how many kings you have after Jehu. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Seven kings in quick succession. And by the time you get to Hoshea, you're in 722 B.C. right here. So just a little chronological check. Solomon uh, started to reign somewhere around 950 B.C., Now we're at 722 B.C., roughly 200 years. Several prophets to try and and get some kind of 
authentic worship of Yahweh, once that doesn't happen, God sends in the Assyrians and wipes them out. And, and when I say wipes them out, wipes them out. There's no lost tribes of Jerusalem, of Judah, of, sorry, of Israel. That's a myth. And the Bible is very clear that God wiped out the northern tribes. There's no grace because he doesn't need them. Because the unconditional promises of the Messianic line are through David. And so here we have our first concept of a remnant. You have a remnant. Now, I will pick up, you know, because you'll say, someone here has read Ezekiel, and will say, well, didn't Ezekiel prophesy that there's two poles and they're going to be joined together? Well, yes. But just hold on. We'll see what Josiah does. This is what makes Josiah really important. So, as we're coming through here, let me see, did I miss any? So that's in the north. Now, in the south, after Rehoboam, sort of the story of the Davidic kings doesn't matter that much until after 722 B.C. It's just not that interesting of a story theologically. They're, they're good and they're bad and they're, they're like keeping the temple going, but they're not doing it perfectly and there's a lot of sin and there's a lot of apostasy, but it's not awful. So it's just sort of not that interesting theologically until we get to Athalia. Now, Athalia is a woman and she wants to become the queen over the land. And she actually serves, I forget, is it two or three years? Not many. But they smuggle her son, Jehoash, in and he lives in the temple, I think for, for those two or three years. And... <laughs> This is really important. Why? What do you think is happening with Athaliah, the one queen of Judah? What happens if she starts her own line? Then the messianic line is, is snuffed out. Keep your, keep your eyes on the big picture here. The Bible, I told you way back in Genesis, is not a book with genealogies. It's a genealogy with stories. Athalia is a first-class pawn of the devil. Because if she can wipe out the Davidic line or supersede it, then this chain that goes all the way back, not just to David, but then from David all the way back to Judah, and Judah all the way back to Abraham, and Abraham all the way back to Adam, Athaliah could wipe it out. And this is exactly what, what Satan is always trying to do. Knock out the messianic line. Whether it takes one person or a whole nation, get rid of the messianic line. And this is what the Holocaust is about. It, it, it is on par theologically with the Holocaust, what she did. So don't let anyone ever say, well, there is female leadership in Israel because she is by no means somebody to be emulated. She's the only queen. But Jehoash lives. And then we don't really worry about, uh, so she gets killed because there's some priests who preserve the crown prince and make him king. And then we don't really worry much more about the kings of Judah until after 722 B.C. Now, if you're reading the book of Isaiah, which you're going to this week, you'll see that Ahaz is a big deal in the book of Isaiah. But he's not a big deal in the book of 2 Kings. It's just interesting. Different theological pro projects in, in both histories. So with Hezekiah, Hezekiah is seen as a potential uh, Messiah in both, in both uh, the book of Isaiah 
and in the book of 2 Kings. Maybe this is the, the one who's going to get us out of this problem. Uh, and so he comes off looking great. He finally exhibits the faith that we've been waiting for as far back as David. He's the first king that really shows promise. He actually believes in, in the prophetic word. He actually humbles himself. He actually prays to God. He actually trusts in God for protection. He's the first Deuteronomy 17 kind of king that we see. And we see that he only trips up just a little bit when he tries to enter into a potential alliance with Babylon. Now at that time, Babylon's not the big bad Babylon that's going to, they're going to be in just a, a few decades. He's trying to secure his position, but he's listened to the prophet about not aligning with Assyria or with Egypt. So he's a good king. He's a model of faith, but he's not the Messiah. He trips, and Isaiah calls him out for it and says, you know, you've, you've done a great job as king. You're very faithful, but your family's going into exile because you lacked perfection. So Hezekiah is really interesting. And then Manasseh. Manasseh is that king that this is the beginning of the end. Well, Solomon was the beginning of the end. But this is where the end is, is now. Like it's, we're in the last days. Manasseh does worse than any Canaanite king could have done. He adopted all of the Canaanite religious practices. Uh, he, he burned his own son, the crown prince, in a, well, I don't know it was a crown prince, but I think, I think it probably was. He, he took his son and sacrificed him to Moloch. Just outside, I've been there. It's not that far from the temple. He filled the temple with all kinds of um, carved images, and he, he had uh, male prostitution happening in the temple. He had every kind of vile uh, practice you could imagine, not just sort of like Jeroboam did elsewhere, but in the temple itself. Yes. I don't know. Antitype means fulfillment. The opposite of? Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, uh, there would be definitely, I think, what you could do with Manasseh. I don't know if this directly answers your question, but I would put him up there with the abomination of desolation. When you're thinking of the abomination of desolation out of Daniel, when, you're th when Jesus is talking about the abomination of desolation, when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, in the Maccabean period comes in and, and, and sets up pagan worship in the temple, he's in that club for sure. So, yeah. So, so, but then after Manasseh, his grandson Josiah says, you know what, the temple is starting to look pretty dingy. We better fix it. And lo and behold, what does Hilkiah find in the temple but the book of Deuteronomy? A lot of scholars have surmised that Josiah wrote the book of Deuteronomy because he happens to find it and uses it to justify a very aggressive kingdom-wide reform. So just so you know, if you're reading the literature, like scholarly literature, a lot of, a lot of scholars will say Josiah is the beginning of Israel and he and his court wrote all of the books of the Bible before him. All of the history is made up. It's all Josianic. It's all his creation to justify his claim and his reforms 
I, I don't buy it, but that's a very popular, it's actually the dominant view in the academy today. It's called the minimalist position. It's the dominant position that Josiah is the beginning of the Bible, and that all of the Bible is beginning to be written in his age. Uh, now, maybe that's an overstatement. There's variations. That would be an extreme version, but he's coalescing it. That's what people say. I don't buy that. Uh, but what he does do is he finds the Torah. He finds the book of Deuteronomy. And when it's read to him, he goes to the prophetess Huldah. Again, you, you'll, so there's Athalia and there's Huldah. Now, Athalia is evil and Huldah is not. Okay? But what do we make of a woman prophet? Does that mean that women should be pastors? First of all, just look at the, the imbalance, right, of all the male prophets. I think the woman prophet is, is, is signaling to us and, and to them just how far they had fallen from God's intention. Just like Deborah was, God used her because the men had abdicated, Josiah is so biblically illiterate that he finds a holy book and he says, I, I don't know what to do with this. Let's take it to Huldah. And I think that's what we make of it. We don't, I mean, God used her in a powerful way, but that's in no way a biblical uh, defense of uh, women pastorate. Yes. Um, right. So both of them. Deborah's halfway down the downward spiral of the, the judges. Huldah is right at this dark point after Manasseh in the kingdom of Judah. Yes, Duncan. Right. Well, that's how illiterate. That's how illiterate they were at the time. Yeah, it's a really good observation. Now, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not down on Hulda. Like, she did her job, right? But that's not the norm. And, and I think that's the point. That's the question. Why not go to Jeremiah at this time? Well, Jeremiah comes on just a little bit later. Um, so he was maybe just starting in Josiah's day, but he's really in the, the Jehoahaz, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin crowd. Okay, so now we get to the, you, you need to know Jehoiachin because that's the last Davidic king before the exile. And so one of Jehoiachin's descendants by the name of Zerubbabel comes back into Jerusalem and that's where we're going to pick up with Ezra and Nehemiah. And Zerubbabel, there's great hope that he's going to be a Davidic king. And he might have even been posturing for it because he just disappears off the historical charts. Probably knocked off by Persia because he was getting too kingly. And God's in control, so what's that say? God wasn't ready for the Davidic kingdom. The next Davidic king after Jehoiachin is not Zedekiah. Zedekiah is Jehoiachin's uncle, so related but he's put in by Nebuchadnezzar. But Jehoiachin is the last Davidic king in the Messianic line before we get to Jesus Christ. So that gives you kind of the, the that's the plot that you need to know. That's what, you, that's what you need to take out of this. So split kingdom, if you don't know about the split kingdom, like whenever somebody preaches from the Old Testament, you'll be confused. Uh, after Solomon, this kingdom splits into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Um, in 722 BC, Assyria wipes out 
Israel, which is the northern kingdom. In 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, but carry Jehoiachin and the wealthy and the educated into captivity. Seventy years later, as prophesied by um, Jeremiah, this, this group, this remnant in Babylon is restored to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild. That's, that's what we'll look at with Ezra and Nehemiah. So that's, that's the general history. Now, take a look. Uh, Duncan already referenced it. Take a look at page number five. This is a super helpful graph. Because what it does, it has all of the kings of Judah on the left, and it compares the, the timeline, so you can see how long they reigned. And then it has all the kings of Israel on the right. And then what I find really helpful is it has the prophets in the middle. So, so when you're reading through the prophets, the very first thing you need to do is figure out what's the historical context for their prophecy. So if you look at Jeremiah, Jeremiah was alive during the, the fall, right? Like he was there with Zedekiah right to the end. So he was alive when Josiah was king, but he really starts ramping up his ministry after the reforms. You know, next king, and, and we're not getting anywhere um, positive. So really helpful graph. Use it when you're reading the Bible. Now, the rest of the time, uh, we have 10 points of biblical theology that I want to touch on. Some we'll go over pretty quick, and some we'll give a little more time to. So, the first thing, when you think about King Solomon, what comes to mind? Wisdom. So you'd either think wisdom or temple. I think those are the two major things that come to mind with Solomon. When you think of King Solomon, you think wisdom and you think temple. Those are the two things that the Bible attaches to him. Those are two good things to, to be associated with, wisdom and temple. What's really fascinating, though, let's talk about wisdom first and foremost. It's as if the writer is at pains to, say, to tell us how wise Solomon was. Right? I think there's at least three times. Solomon was the wisest of the kings of his age. In fact, he's the wisest man that there ever was. So wise was this Solomon. And so rich was this Solomon. Okay, that's fine. But then you read his life and it unfolds in the exactly the opposite way. Like, if he's so wise, why is he making so many bonehead mistakes? And that's part of the irony and the way that this is written. One of the agendas that I believe the Deuteronomist had was just picture yourself sitting in Babylon. You've just, most of your family got killed. It was a holocaust. You're a holocaust survivor. You've been ripped out of your land, which has deep theological consequence to it because God promised you the land. You either saw with your own eyes or you heard about the destruction of the temple. And when they ripped down the Holy of Holies, there was no God there. 
So you're either thinking, well, this whole thing is a sham, like there is no God, Yahweh is non-existent, and that's one of the goals of the Deuteronomistic history of the former prophets, is show, no, God is real, God is in control, there's a reason we're in Babylon. That's one way of going. The other way of going is to say, if only we could go back to the days of David and Solomon. If only David or someone like David was king again, if only Solomon or someone like Solomon was king again, then we wouldn't be here. And one of the theological points of this part of salvation history is to say, as great as David and Solomon were, they weren't that great. Because actually the downward trend of kingship in Israel starts with David. Right? You get this beautiful Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. Three chapters later, he's sleeping with his best friend's wife. He kills his best friend, tries to cover it up. A prophet comes and says, you're the man. And then we see all kinds of infighting in his family. He's a deadbeat father that never intervenes. Brings back the son that tries to overthrow his kingdom. Cries when, when Absalom is killed. And then on his deathbed, says to the son that's going to take over, uh, follow in the ways of the Lord, but also kill these guys. And just compare his public last words in, in the end of 2 Samuel with his private last words in 1 Kings 2. So you see the downward spiral there, and then that continues in the biography of Solomon. And what you get in Solomon's life is... The, the narrator preserving the reputation of, of Solomon and his wisdom while articulating the utter folly of Solomon, if you read it carefully. And to prove it, just going through Deuteronomy 17, right? This is what a good king would be. If Solomon was wise, he would pattern his reign after the instructions that God gave for kings in Deuteronomy 17. And in fact, with the exception of a couple very basic requirements, Solomon breaks everything. So, if you want to follow along on verse, uh, page 20, I'll just cruise through kind of quick. We'll just go through this. Deuteronomy 17, starting in verse 14, says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I'll set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Okay. So they, uh, Solomon succeeds in this first requirement, which is just a birth certificate. He had nothing to do with that. He was a, a, a native-born Israelite, born to David and Bathsheba. We find that out in 2 Samuel 12, 24 and 25. And we also know that he is the one that God had chosen. We're, we, we find out that the Lord loved Solomon, 1 Samuel, or 2 Samuel 2, 25, and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. This is God saying, he's my man. He's, he's the one to carry on the Abrahamic blessing. He's going to take the Davidic covenant forward one generation. So Solomon succeeds in accomplishing the one thing that he had no control over. Now, continuing on in Deuteronomy 17. 
Verse 16, or he, only he must not acquire many horses for himself. 1 Kings 4.26, Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Oops, broke that one. What's the problem with that? What's wrong with horses? Horses are like nuclear weapons. Well, maybe not that bad. They're like tanks. He's, He's trying to secure his position not through faith, but through arms. He's arming himself, which betrays a lack of faith. Continuing on in Deuteronomy 17, and he is not to cause the people to return to Egypt. No alliances with Egypt ever, says God. 1 Kings 3.1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That's the very first thing we read that he did. Right out of the gate. You don't have to wait to chapter 11. Chapter 11, by the way, is not in chronological sequence. We get a, a list of things that Solomon had done at the end of his biography, but you have to bring those things back earlier into his life. He didn't trip at the finish line. He was a bad king from the start. He took Pharaoh's daughter, brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Continuing on in Deuteronomy 17, in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Don't make a, a military alliance with Egypt. Don't gather many horses. 1 Kings 10, 26. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common. Oh yeah, well, we'll get to that. Verse 17, Deuteronomy 17, 17. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Well, Solomon was a one-woman man, right? No, 1 Kings 11, 1. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning with which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. But Solomon clung close to these in love, and he had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Why the distinction between 700 wives and 300 concubines? The 700 wives are political alliances. The 300 concubines are sex slaves. There's no political benefit to Solomon for having them in the harem. It's disgusting. Uh, Politically, first, it's disgusting politically. 700 alliances when you're not supposed to make any. And then the whole sex slavery, well, that's an issue. He's not to have these many wives, lest his heart turn away, says Deuteronomy. And we get it very clearly. I mean, the Deuteronomist has got Deuteronomy 17 wide open while he's writing Solomon's biography. And his wives turned away his heart. It's word for word. It's in 1 Kings 11, verse 3. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Continuing on in Deuteronomy 17, 17, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. 1 Kings 10, 14, 
Now the weight of gold that came from Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which came from the explorers and from the businesses of the merchants and from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon, like just in his private stash. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps. The throne had a round top, and on each side of the seat were armrests, two lions, etc., etc. And Kings, verse 21 of 1 Kings 10, All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all of the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver, because silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon, for the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. And if we go up higher, we're told that... uh, Well, there is a place, oh yeah. Well, I, I forget where, but it says he made um, s- silver so common in the land. Like he was just loaded with silver and gold. So he broke that one too. Continuing on in Deuteronomy 17, verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. That is, he's supposed to write out the Torah for himself. And the priests are supposed to check it and make sure it's accurate. It's really interesting. In 1 Kings 4, we're told how wise. This is one of those seemingly pro-Solomon passages. And we're told how wise he is. And his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than all other men. Wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and He-Man. Well, it's Haman, but I like He-Man better. Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Now look at this. We get a list of what he wrote. He, sp- he spoke and wrote 3,000 proverbs. His songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees. Trees. From the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. All the people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and to hear all the kings of the earth from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom He never wrote out a copy of the Torah, though. He was good at botany and zoology, proverbs and songs. No Torah. It shall be with him, uh, we go on. um, Well, okay, uh, Deuteronomy 17, 19. It shall be with him that he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes by doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And here in 1 Kings 11, verse 11, the Lord said to Solomon, since it has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you. Total failure. Yeah. Well, tradition says that he wrote them, but that's not the Torah. So even if God was gracious to bring wisdom, biblical wisdom into existence through Solomon, he still failed to do what was primary, 
which is to write out a copy of the Torah. Interestingly enough, just to go sideways on this a little bit, you know that epic scene where Solomon has a sword and he's going to cut the baby in half and, and because these two women are saying that they both are the mother? That seems like, wow, he's so wise. Not a single reference to the law of God in his deliberations. Bring out the sword. Why not bring out the Torah? We celebrate that as, as wisdom, but you know what it is? It's a parable. The baby is the kingdom. And because Solomon did not write out a copy of the Torah, because Solomon did not follow the covenant, the kingdom, which is God's baby, is going to be cut in two. And both kings, the king of Judah and the king of Israel, is going to claim the kingdom for himself. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Solomon silenced the prophets. You don't see any real prophetic voice. In fact, Ahijah goes to Jeroboam, not to Solomon. That's a good observation. But that whole scene of the baby and the sword, it is not pro-Solomon. It is anti-Solomon. It is a parable. It's historical, but it's a parable of Solomon's folly. It worked out well there. Praise God. The baby didn't get cut in half, but the kingdom did. So it works with babies, not so well with kingdoms. Uh, moving on. Yeah, we're at the first one. Uh, I don't have time for this. It's in your notes. Kings and the wisdom tradition. In, biblical wisdom is not just proverbial, meaning do well and you'll be blessed, do wrong and you'll be cursed. That's the backbone of this salvation history. But you also have Job where the righteous suffer. You also have Ecclesiastes where the, the wicked prosper. You see it all in here. And there's a nice quote that I got from Peter Lightheart, uh, which I put in your notes. I don't have any more time on that, but it's fascinating. At the very beginning of the book of Kings, you have all this talk about wisdom, 21 references to wisdom in the life of Solomon. Solomon is written as an absolute fool, to use wisdom language, and then the word wisdom never shows up again at all. The wisest king was a fool, and everyone after him didn't even come close to anything resembling wisdom. That's, that's fascinating, just that theological read. Oh, there were some good kings, but there's never the word hachma to describe them. You've got to understand, wisdom is not the same as faithfulness. Two different things. It's, it's, a, it's a stream of biblical theology that we're actually not going to get into very much in, in frontline phase two. So, yeah, there's faithful kings, uh, but not wise kings. Now, Josiah, I might say that he was wise, but the Deuteronomist never calls him wise. Solomon and the temple. So this, Solomon is associated with, um, with wisdom and with the temple. Now, the temple as it's described, is even, even more uh, described as a portal to Eden. You have palm trees and pomegranates and, and flowers and all these lushness. And so when, when Solomon sets up the temple, he's really doubling down on this is a portal back into Eden, so I don't think I need to go over that again. But it's fascinating, in, in this book, where the temple is the center of their religious life with God, 
the temple hardly ever comes up. The only time the temple is referenced is when uh, a king of Judah needs to pay a debt of tribute to Assyria or to some other, I don't know if there's any other nation, but definitely Assyria. So the temple is used to finance the breaking of Deuteronomy 17. Or you have kings that come by and loot the temple and, and steal from the temple. And it, why isn't the temple being protected? Or um, you have the destruction of the temple in 2 Kings 25. It's just strange that in this theological history, the temple is hardly mentioned. Why is it? It's because they had it, but they weren't really using it. That's, that's God's big problem. That, that's, that's why he's upset. You read Ezekiel 8 to 10, and, and you see that God just can't stand the blasphemies and the apostasies that are going on in his temple. You don't have to go to Jeroboam's um, golden calves. The temple itself is a center of, of wickedness. Which is why when Jesus comes and cleanses the temple, it's long overdue. Long overdue. So God just was patiently enduring with their misuse of the temple. Or their non-use. Misuse or non-use of the temple. Oh, that's the other thing. The only other time you hear about the temple is when they're, where they're filling it with idols. And male prostitutes. So finally, Jesus comes. Now this gives you a whole different sort of emotional engagement with Jesus. In Ezekiel 8 to 10, we're told that finally God can't stay there anymore. And if Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and destroy the temple, God's manifest glory has got to leave. And so very reluctantly, the Shekinah glory of God leaves. There's a little chariot comes down, picks God up, and they go. Finally, Jesus, who is the Shekinah glory of God, comes in to the temple and says, enough with this. <laughs> Cleanses it. Long time coming. And that's when Jesus says, tear down this temple in three days. I'll build it again. So the temple is a typology of the incarnation. It's where God meets with humanity. Finally, in Jesus Christ, we get the meeting of God and humanity. Got to keep moving. I haven't budgeted my time very well. Um, Solomon and Jesus. As much as Solomon was a fool, he's known for wisdom and he was radically wealthy, and he was military, mi militarily superior. All of these things are typological of Jesus. Jesus himself says it. So you can actually have a burnout king who God uses to say, this is what my true king is going to be like, only better. And Jesus says uh, in Luke eleven thirty one. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, that is the people that Jesus were talking to, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. She had enough sense to come and see Solomon, who was a total failure as a, as a Davidic king, but she had enough sense to see that there was something there, and now Jesus goes on, behold, something greater than Solomon is here, and you don't see it. Whereas Solomon crashed and burned, I'm the real thing. He was pointing to me, and I'm going to reign on his throne, and I'm going to have the wealth of the whole universe at my disposal. And I, I am wisdom personified, Proverbs. I'm the true temple. 
Everything that Solomon's kingdom was about, wisdom, riches, military superiority, and temple, I am all of that in fullness. It's pretty cool. I love it when God can take a failure and say, but look at Jesus, life of Solomon. Continuing on, the prophetic word, 19 times. Go through it, it's all in your notes. 19 times a prophet speaks. And 19 times the prophecy is fulfilled in these two books. What does that tell us? The superiority of the prophetic word. The kings are not getting it done. So God sends his prophets. And the word of God trumps everything. The word of God is superior. And what is Jesus? In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The Word of God, the prophetic Word, came forth in a human being. In former times, we heard through messengers. Now, in these last days, we hear through His own Son. That's pretty cool. So we have a king who doesn't need a prophet over top of him telling him all the things he's doing wrong. He is the prophet that sets the standard and reigns in perfect righteousness. There's one, one episode I want to bring to your attention, and that's the man of God that goes to condemn Jeroboam's apostasy, and then he's on his way home, and a prophet comes up, and we're told in, in that very thing, in that very narrative, the prophet knowingly lies to the man of God and says, the Lord has told me to invite you over for lunch. Oh, well then, if the Lord told you. And the Lord had told the man of God, whatever you do, don't eat or drink when you're in Israel. So the prophet lies to the man of God. The man of God believes the prophet, which you'd think would be a good thing, but he breaks what he knows God had said to him, and he goes and he eats in, in Israel. And so after, the prophet says, see you later, and, he, and the man of God walks away, and a lion comes and destroys him. But doesn't eat him, just stands beside him, and there's a donkey on the other side, which, figure that out. What's the point? What's the point? The point is, not even the prophet is above the word of God. If you're a messenger of the Word of God, don't, don't play games with the Word of God. Not even the prophets are safe. It's not about prophets being more important than kings. That's why that's a really important episode. It's about the Word of God being supreme. And if the messenger trifles with the Word of God, woe to him. And, I mean, preachers better be careful on that point. So 19 episodes, you can look into those. Elijah and Elisha. So much to say here. A lot in your notes. The real take home that I want you to look at is Moses, or Elijah is portrayed as a new Moses. And Elisha is a new Joshua. And the beginning of this, how do you make that connection? Well, the beginning of it is when, when I noticed it anyway. It's not the beginning in the book, but when I noticed it was when Elijah is about to be raptured up to heaven and he takes his cloak and he smacks the Jordan River with it and they cross over on dry ground. Who does that remind you of? 
well, only two men, right? Moses and Joshua. So I will say this. What do Moses and Elijah have in common? Well, both Moses and Elijah met with God on Mount Horeb. So that connects them before. Like Elijah makes a 40-day journey back to Sinai to meet with God after he defeats the prophets of Baal. What's he doing? Well, I don't know exactly, but he wants to have a word with God. But for us, it connects him with Moses. They're the only two men that meet with God on Mount Sinai. Interesting enough that it's Moses and Elijah on Mount Tabor when they meet with Jesus in the Transfiguration. Something going on there. Connect the dots. Secondly, both Moses and Elijah are associated with fire from heaven. When Moses went up Sinai, there's fire from heaven, and everyone's afraid to go up on Mount Sinai, which is Mount Horeb. It's the same mountain. Because God is manifesting his presence in fire, what is Elijah associated with? He's, he calls down fire from heaven in his contest with the prophets of Baal. He calls down fire from heaven to consume the captain and the companies of 50 when they're trying to get him to go and talk to the king. So that puts the two together. God, thirdly, God delivered the Torah through Moses. And Elijah's ministry was focused on calling Israel back to covenant faithfulness with God through obedience to the Mosaic covenant. That's what Elijah was all about. And why did Elijah go under, sit under a broom tree and say, I just want to die? Seems pretty manic, doesn't it? Manic depressive? It's not, actually. His whole life had been given... He'd been sent by God to call the northern kingdom to repent and to be faithful to the covenant. He even calls fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice that is dripping wet in the middle of a drought. And they don't stop worshiping the Baals. If that won't stop Israel from worshiping false gods, then nothing will. So he's like, well, I'm done. I got, there's nothing more for me to do. I just want to die. I hate my job. I hate these people. I just want to die. Um, and that's, what that, that's when he goes to Mount Sinai. But they're both associated with that. His whole ministry is about covenant faithfulness and repentance. Fourth, no one was able to find the body of Moses. And Elijah's body couldn't be found either. And they actually went looking for it, right? He was raptured up to heaven on a chariot of fire. But Elisha's um, disciples say, let's go and find the body. And Elisha's don't bother, but they went and looked anyway. The, the, at the end of Deuteronomy, it says no one was able to find the, the grave site or the, the, the burial site of Moses. Both bodies vanished. We're told in Jude that an angel whisked um, Moses' body away. So maybe they were both caught up to heaven. Maybe an angel came down and got Moses' body. I don't know. So therefore, Elijah is a new Moses in the sense that he is calling Israel to national repentance for breaking the law. So what do Joshua and Elisha have in common? Well, number one, just as Joshua succeeded Moses, so also Elisha succeeded Elijah. That's kind of basic. Uh, number two, though, just as we previously proved that Joshua surpassed Moses, so also, Elisha's 14 miracles surpassed Elijah's 7. So he's superior to Elijah. Third, just as Joshua took Israel into the promised land and led them in covenant faithfulness, so also Elisha leads a subversive group called the Sons of the Prophets into the promised land as an alternative in true Israel. This is interesting. 
it's not clear, it, like nowhere does the, the Bible say, look at this, but read it carefully. Elijah is confronting, 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 looking for repentance. He's a fire and brimstone, repent or go to hell kind of guy. Then he wants to die because, well, that's not working. So God at Mount Horeb says, fine, go and appoint Elisha. Now, Elisha has a ve- the exact opposite approach. He comes in and he says, who's with me? And a band of people gather around him at Jericho. That's kind of interesting. First Kings 3, or uh, Second Kings 3, sorry, somewhere in there. So a band of, of men gather around him, and throughout the rest of the narrative, we find out that these sons of the prophets, that's what that they're called, they also have family members. And they're engaged in the world around them. And Elisha now, his miracles are not confrontational miracles. They're miracles of provision and healing and health and strength and life. And in his last miracle, he's dead. A Moabite gets thrown into his grave and the Moabite is raised back to life of resurrection. Now, isn't that interesting? Two different approaches. Confront, 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 or subvert. And just as Joshua, this is where the, the overlap with Joshua comes in. Joshua, we know about the big conquest, right? He defeated all these people. But we find out in Judges that actually he left a lot of Canaanites in the land. And so Israel now is a subversive community in the promised land. They own it, they take control of it, they take possession of it, but there's actually a contest, very similar to what's going on in Israel right now. And, and so Joshua leads a, a subversive presence of Israelites into the promised land where they have to fight. Elisha does the same thing subversive presence in the promised land. So there's a true Israel that Elisha leads. And the apostate Israel is already being thrown off. Now, interesting, move forward. We know that Jesus says that John the Baptist is the Elijah that was prophesied. Because in Malachi, we find out that before the day of the Lord, God will send Elijah back. Jesus says that Elijah is John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist do? Well, he looks like Elijah, but what does he do? Confront, 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 confront. Repent, repent, repent. You're breaking covenant. Let's go back to the Jordan River. I gotta bring you into the land again. We're gonna re-enter the land, and this time we're gonna keep covenant. Repent. Baptism of repentance, right? Just like Elijah, keep the law of Moses. Moses, Elijah, John. What's Jesus do? He doesn't confront like that, not anymore. Subversive. Who's with me? Who's with me? Twelve disciples around him? Okay, we're the true Israel. We're going to come in here. We're, we are going to take the land. We're going to be the kingdom. So all these other people, they're still here, but the kingdom is going to grow like a, like a mustard seed. We're just going to plant it and it's going to grow up all around the weeds. And at the end of the day, everything's going to get chopped down, the weeds are going to get burned, and the kingdom will enter into glory. Is that cool? So now, ask the conversation we had at men's breakfast, what, what should we, 
should we be in Elijah or should we be in Elisha? Should we confront, 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 confront? Or should we be a subversive presence in the world? Is the kingdom of God going to spread by confronting the political powers, the parliaments, the congresses, the royal families? Are we going to take over the world by taking over the levers of government? Or, that's, that's Moses, Elijah, John. Or, is the kingdom going to take over the world by being a subversive community, spreading out all over the face of the earth, providing an alternative? This is just food for thought. Ultimately, Jesus will return and confront the world, right? But in the meantime, I think the Elisha program is a little more appealing. And that's exactly what Israel's doing. They just sent people in, and they're living in Palestine, and they're growing up in the land as an Elisha kind of community. Uh, we're out of time, but let me just quickly see, see what we got left. I'll just note it, and then it's in your notes. Idolatry. I, I've been here. This is, I don't know if this is my picture. I think it is. This is Jeroboam's altar in Dan. And I've been there. You, you can go there today. Up on that platform is where the golden calf was. Idolatry is a major theme. The, a king is good or bad based on are they leading the people toward God or toward idols? And ultimately, it, the gospel's that simple. Either you're, you're with God through Christ or you're not. And there's a lot about sex, um, sex and apostasy, like false worship goes together. Let me just say this. S uh, I've said this before, um, but God has created us to be sexual, spiritual creatures, and our sexuality is meant to mirror true religion. So heterosexual monogamy in marriage is a picture of spiritual worship of the one true God. Heterosexual perversion or adultery, fornication and adultery is a picture of idolatry. All through the Old Testament, this is idolatry and adultery and fornication go together. And homosexuality is a picture of self-worship. Humanism. That's why sexual sin matters to God. He, he has created us, so if our sexuality as a society will tell you exactly where we are as a, as a society spiritually. I've, if you are more curious about that, I don't have time, but King Josiah, I think we've already talked about him. But the interesting thing about King Josiah, all that he did was not enough. God had already decided this thing's going to come to a crashing end. The exile happened in 586 BC. This is on the macro typological level, a picture of the final judgment because that is the final curse in Deuteronomy 28. And so by the end of 2 Kings, in our macro typology of the gospel, we're second to last. We're in Revelation 20, 11 to 15 because the lake of fire, that's hell, is the ultimate, never-ending, irreversible exile from God. So being kicked out of the promised land, if the promised land is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, being kicked out 
of the promised land is a picture of being kicked out of the new heavens and the new earth into the lake of fire. So when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, it's interesting that after the final judgment, exile, God restores a remnant to the land and there's a new Jerusalem. And Ezra reteaches the law and Nehemiah rebuilds the city and Zerubbabel and Haggai and Zechariah rebuild the, the temple. That's all a picture of Revelation 21 and 22, the new Jerusalem in the new, in the new heavens and the new earth. And then lastly, the Davidic covenant. All I want to say, our great hope is the family of Abraham whittled down to the family of David and they are an awful mess, right? And they're the great hope of the world. Why does God do it that way? To show the depth and the power of his grace. If you think that whatever you've done will put you outside of God's grace, just look at David and his family. They merited exile into Babylon, and we've seen a lot of mess. And yet, this is how the Deuteronomistic history ends. This is how the prophetic, or the former prophets ends. 2 Kings 25, verses 27 to 30. In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month. Now this, do you think this is historically accurate? You got the exact day. Evil Merodach, the king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison, and he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table, and for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. What we find out is Jehoiachin is still alive. That's, that's the messianic line. And what we're going to find out is the Messianic line comes out of exile and is through Zerubbabel a part of building the new Jerusalem. And from Zerubbabel to Jesus, we have a genealogical record, the grace of God. So there's hope, even at the end of this. And it's from verses like this that in the second temple period, that's after they return to the land and rebuild the temple, verses like this give rise to Messianic fervor, and rightly so. Let's, I'm going to close because some guys need to go and then I would love to stay and talk. So we can even talk publicly like this, but if you have to go, then, then you can go. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for this history. I hope that I've done some justice to it. Uh, just been able to scratch the surface, but I pray for us, Lord. Help us to read these, these scriptures and to see there's so much in there to be instructive for us for understanding our own gospel. Please bless these men as they read the book of Isaiah this week. In Christ's name, amen.